Welcome to the Fulfillment Stories podcast number 15. I'm Chelsea Bay Dennis. Fulfillment is a storytelling event featuring local community leaders and entrepreneurs who share their journey towards fulfillment and meaning through vocation that will challenge you to come alive. Holly Wren Spaulding is a passionate collaborator, teacher, editor, and creative consultant who lives in Williamsburg, Massachusetts, where she founded Poetry Forge, an incubator for writers and their work, mentors clients through Lifeform, and co-directs Storyhouse Partners, a communications consultancy. Because Leelanau County, Michigan remains her home, she returns often to teach at Interlochen College of Creative Arts and elsewhere in the region. Here's Holly's story from the September 2015 event. Hello. Thank you, Shay. Thank you, Chelsea. And thank you, Margaret, for your story. And Ty, I, I just had a memory while he was speaking about the first business endeavor I under, ever undertook, and that was to start Holly's Pantry when I was nine years old. And I made pies for my neighbors and other luscious things out of extremely wholesome organic ingredients. And um, it was not the answer to what I should do with my life, but it was the beginning of probably thinking about how I could use my creativity in some way that would be fun for me. Um, so this is a challenge for me to even tell my story. I spend all my time listening to other people's stories and helping them craft them and, and talk about them. And it was really interesting to be asked to tell my own and to think about it and, and to write a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of pages before I figured out what I would want to share with you. Because the story that we each have to tell isn't really the plot points and it isn't really the biographical details that you might put in your you know, professional bio or your CV. But it is those moments and it is those encounters along the way that in some fashion start to take a form that has some kind of meaning to it. And it is important to examine it and to figure out what you're going to do about that. Um, so I'll begin my story with a man reading a book on how to build and live in a one-room cabin in the woods. This young man was a guitar-picking painter, a carpenter, a war resistor, an anti-nuke activist who'd rambled through Haight-Ashbury when the counterculture flourished there. A man interested in Eastern thought, a poet, an iconoclast with a critique of materialism and most forms of illegitimate authority. And my story begins with a woman who raced sailboats with her dad boycotted her graduation ceremony from art school in protest of the shootings at Kent State. A cellist and macrobiotic cook who attended Woodstock and was preparing for a spiritual pilgrimage to India when she, when she met that man in a small natural foods bakery in Kalamazoo, Michigan. She had flour on her face. And the man, bursting through the door, heart pounding, knew she was the one. It's family lore that my dad drew upon the considerable power of his conviction to persuade my mother that his was the kind of adventure that she should join. Sometime later, I was born. <laughs> they didn't name me for two weeks, 
But when they did, they took inspiration from a short story by James Fenimore Cooper because there was a character called Run of the Woods in that story. We lived in a converted lineman's shack. This is one of these sort of movable shacks that people who work on the railways use. And it was insulated with newspaper. And we stayed there until they found land in the hills and hollows of rural Antrim County. They founded a community there. Hartwood was an experiment in collectivity, in village life, in alternative economy, and in living according to the natural rhythms of the seasons. We homesteaded, existing outside the system and off the grid for all the formative years of my life. When we read the Laura Ingalls Wilder stories, I felt a particular affinity to that little girl because we were actually living a pretty 19th century style of life. We chopped wood and carried water, literally. And my young siblings and I were expected to be part of this from the beginning, learning how to be hardy and self-motivated because our parents didn't abide complaints or indolence. I remember kerosene lanterns hauling maple sap in buckets and getting around on foot or by bike. My dad was known among my friends in town as MacGyver because he can fix anything. Just give him a rubber band. We mended and we made do. This life would have seemed very strange to an outsider. We were hippies, after all. But if you could get beyond the popular stereotype, we would have, you would have found a group of thoughtful, interesting people with a wish to live differently, away from conventional ambitions and the pace of urban life. It was a visionary project and a social experiment at a time when people were open to alternatives and game to take a risk. I was the firstborn of a long line of children who grew up in that place, and I loved to make up songs and dances to amuse myself and to collect wildflower bouquets and build fern forts and go sledding on our steep, long driveway. Most of all, though, I loved books, and I would read them under my covers at night with flashlights powered by very precious batteries that were not easy to come by. This is the cliché of the budding writer. But I didn't know that's what I was. Honestly, I had many interests and pursuits, but none of it, even as a team, was about preparing myself for some academic or career path. I took dance lessons and played violin and acted and didn't do any of this very well, which didn't stop me. In fact, I remember entering a talent show in which I improvised a dance to Pachelbel's Canon in D major, wearing a beautiful pink dance costume that my mother had sewn by hand. I freely frolicked and cavorted around that stage without a plan. <laughs> I must have felt that creative expression belonged to me, whether I was technically skilled or not. I had something in me, and I was experimenting with how to articulate it. I love to hear and learn new words and the world opened to me this way. Sometimes I involved my mother by dictating stories which she would type on her portable typewriter. Sometimes kids teased me, saying I talked weird and I dressed weird. I was from a world where TV and popular culture had no foothold. I resolved to be my own person, though, even in the face of social pressure, since what I really long to be is who I really am. 
I can't think of many of those iconic aha moments that people talk about. It hasn't been that way for me. I've had to pay attention to the small things, the little moments, the details which, taken together, start to show me the pattern or help me make a choice or reveal me to myself. And that's what it's all about, being available to notice, following the yearning through confusion and frustration until the thing I need to do becomes apparent. Contemplation and action. Here's a moment when something significant happened. I was sitting in an English class at Glen Lake Public School, and Duncan Spratt Moran, at that time an artist-in-residence, walked into the room and started talking about poetry. I had such an immense sense of kinship that I tagged along after him at every opportunity. Another decisive moment occurred during a performance of Coppelia at Interlochen, Row K. I was in 10th grade. And afterwards, I turned to my mother, who'd spent time there as a young woman studying visual art, and I said, I want to go here. I knew I needed training, and I knew that that was a place to get it. I also lived in Germany around this time, where there isn't the same tendency to infantilize the youth. So I was responsible for myself and had to learn a foreign language from scratch. And I had lots of serious conversations, especially about U.S. foreign policy because the first Gulf War was happening then. This was also the beginning of my experience of what it's like to fall asleep at night, exhausted and with a headache from the pure exertion of trying to figure out what I needed to say. In Germany, there was less emphasis on getting along and more interest in talking about difficult, real, and often emotional topics. These days, I try to start these conversations with people because I believe in them. I think we need them. At University of Michigan, I had a poetry professor, Ken Michalowski, who was also an iconoclast and never let his dandy position at the university get in the way of what he really thought about anything. And he took me under his wing, and he encouraged me during that first year to submit poetry to a prestigious, a prestigious contest at the university. I remember spreading my work around on the dorm room floor and falling into a trance of reading and writing and arranging when I won the first of six Hopwood Awards, it was my first really concrete affirmation as a poet. I took the money and went to Europe for the summer, then declared my major, and continued writing and submitting work every year for the rest of my time in Ann Arbor. This was the kind of early quasi-professional success that would not always come easily for me, but it did build up some kind of necessary confidence at a key moment. Later, I met Robert Bartle, a generous, independent-thinking, mountaineer, anarcho-Buddhist who made me want to be a revolutionary of some kind, a radical, principled, and fearless. We hiked and backpacked in New Zealand and then the American West, where he taught me how to climb, which was terrifying and incredible. It was what I needed to train my body and mind. I practiced how to get radically calm and focus on the moves. It showed me how to push past my unconscious desire for things to be easier than they really are. When you're partway up a sheer rock face, it's only you who can get you to the top. I took the lesson along with the bloody knees and the torn up fingers and the tears, and the metaphor remains of use to me today. 
At a remote climbing area in Idaho, Robert took a 50-foot fall. He landed on the ground at my feet, bloodied and broken. We were about an hour and a half from emergency services if you sped the entire way, which I did. No phones in those days, no helicopter rescue. I had made an error in a knot. Jim Harrison says in one of his poems, we don't get back those days. I've lived by that dictum, but when Robert almost died, it became real to the point that I've had to take every day of my life much more seriously. As friends and as partners, we studied Zen, climbed and became organizers and activists during the era of anti-globalization protests. We co-founded Sweetwater Alliance to bring awareness to the issue of corporate enclosures of the commons, especially our shared water. We worked on a farm, and I wrote about all of this as a self-taught journalist, an essayist, a poet. I also traveled and researched and did solidarity work in Chiapas, South Africa, Brazil, Japan, focusing on grassroots social movements, eventually joining a team of international filmmakers to make a feature film called Flow about those people in other parts of the world who are fighting to preserve their water. That film continues to do its work, moving around the world, starting little fires, which is consolation because I was broke and needed to find a way to live at a scale that didn't burn me out or leave me feeling I was missing something essential. I kept asking, what should I do? This kept me up at night. It festered. I feared I was born at the wrong time and definitely in the wrong country. And I often felt unable to socialize or simply have fun with others because the true purpose of my life was still unknown to me. I had been almost entirely focused on doing work that might, I hoped, leave a positive impact on the world or at least my community. But I was out of alignment somehow. I liked working in documentary film. I had a small clothing and jewelry business that even this year put one of my designs on the pages of British Vogue. I wondered if I should join the family building business. I am the kind of person who throws all I've got at things, so any of these ideas were potentially viable, but none felt quite right. I needed to get quiet. I needed to go further inside myself than I had ever gone. The animating question at the center of all this contemplation was how to make a life given what I know about myself about my true capacity, my particular sensibility, my unique talents. And I had been watering the seeds of poetry all along. I had only a little bit of teaching experience, but my real skills came from elsewhere. Here's the thing. Sometimes you're going to be brilliant at something even if you didn't train for it, even if you didn't get the right degree, even if you didn't manage your career properly, which was true for me. The fact is, I was deeply interested in the work of social change. I wanted to nurture ideas and precipitate action. I translated these concepts into my creative writing classroom at the college where I discovered, much to my relief, that I had a knack for teaching and a big heart for others on their creative journey. One day, about five years ago, I found myself saying to a group of writers, more than a house or a career or a child, or a husband, I've always wanted a life in art. And it's true. 
even if it took me a long time to declare it. The alternative way I grew up has never left me. I am the child of those flower children who dreamed of returning to a more resourceful, ethical, and socially engaged way of life. I've never had a nine-to-five. I accepted the uncertainties and discomforts, but also the freedoms of this choice. I've kept my wants few. I live simply. Eudora Welty said that a writer can live on a little bit of rice. These are words that I live by. Just as my father said, he was inspired by the Zen saying, treasure your poverty, never trade it for an easier life. Before I close, I do have one really big aha moment that I can share. Several years ago, I came across a 15-year-old letter from a man named Matt, whom I'd known very briefly during my years writing at University of Michigan. To make a long, beautiful story short, within days of striking up a correspondence, we were in love crazy, change-your-life kind of love. No texts, no phone calls, no photos, no Facebook, no Google searches. We wrote the most important words of our lives while we tried to figure out how to be together. I left my teaching job at the college and decided I was done with academia. I left a lot that I care about. The big lake, my friends, my family, my house, this community... I had enough money saved to move 1,000 miles east and to set up housekeeping in a 600-square-foot apartment. It was helpful for me to trust that I don't need many things to make a good life these days. In my case, it fit into a compact car. But the big love that was the essential ingredient will never be replaced by any career goal. We were married one year ago. With Matt, I run a communications consultancy while I continue to teach independently and mentor writers and artists and others who are looking for some kind of form in their lives. A student recently said she'd be interested to hear me talk tonight because I seem like I've always known what I'm supposed to do. It's not like that. I've always known what really matters to me, but my path has felt harrowing at almost every stage. When I step back and consider it, the arc of it, the pieces make a kind of inevitable sense, but only in hindsight. I was raised by people who are models of self-sufficiency and creativity. They were hardcore about creating their own change, and so am I. There's a poem by Antonio Machado that says, Wanderer, there is no path. In walking, we lay down the path. Finding one's place in the ecosystem is the most important journey of your life. So my challenge, and thank you so much for listening, is that I want you to consider renouncing something. I actually give this to my writing students frequently, and I call it the Lenten approach. I'm not Catholic, and I'm not very acquainted even with all of the ideas that surround Lent. But the idea is to give up something for some period of time and see what happens when you don't have that in your life anymore. So my challenge for you is to renounce something that maybe means a little bit less to you in order to have room for something that means a little bit more to you. Maybe it'll work. I wish you all the best. <laughs>